going on? It is Carlo from Four Guys with Quarters, and I have a very special interview today with George Gomez. Uh, before I let him introduce himself real quick, I'm just going to let you know that Mav from Xbox Ultimate is on the panel with me today to help ask some questions, and he's also part of Four Guys with Quarters. But um, I'm going to go right into you, George. So tell us a little bit about yourself. So, um, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, um, I'm a very lucky guy. I've, um, I've spent my entire uh, professional career uh, creating entertainment stuff. <clears throat> and I've, um, I've uh, bounced around um, a bunch of different mediums. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm um, so I'll tell you, I'll tell you a little bit about me. I'm a, um, I'm an industrial designer by trade. I have a bachelor's degree in industrial design. And, um, and when I was in school, I, um, industrial designers are sort of, I don't know if you know what that, what they are, but they are sort of the architects of products. They are more, um, involved in the, you know, what does it feel like? Uh, what does it look like? How do you interact with it? And, you know, how does it make you feel? Uh, side of things, you know, like the guys that uh, determine, you know, what a car looks like, the guys that will design a piece of furniture, the guys that designed your iPhone, um, those are industrial designers. And engineers work on, you know, making sure that it works and, and it's reliable and you can, you know, you can mass produce it. And there's a little bit of crossover. Um, so, a good way to think about it is an industrial designer is like a cross between uh, an artist and an engineer. Um, you know, an engineer is all about how many gears, how many ball bearings, and a designer is all about, you know, what does it look like? What does it feel like? How do I relate to it? How do I use it? Um, you know, what does it make me, what does it make me feel when I use it, right? So, um, so we, we worry about form and color and and what does it sound like and and you know what is what you know when you the, what does the tactile stuff uh feel like does it feel good does it you know does it you know like uh we'll talk a little bit about uh some of the very first stuff i did which was controller stuff um but so i you know so i got this i got this design degree i went to a very generalist uh design school meaning that you know it wasn't a school that was all about car design or all about, you know, uh, furniture design or so guys were going in all kinds of different directions and coming up, you know, coming up towards uh, graduation, I, I honestly wasn't sure what I wanted to do. And I, um, I was playing games, uh, you know, so just to, just to set the table for you, this is like, I graduated in May of 1978. So, you know, get in the Wayback Machine and go back to what games looked like in 1978. And they were pretty primitive, right? So I, um, you know, on my way between classes or when I had a, a study break or whatever, I'd, I'd be in the arcade at university, um, you know, checking out the games, playing games, et cetera. And, you know, I had a teacher that said, you know, you should, you should work on something you're really passionate about because you're going to be a lot better at it. And I had another teacher that said, you should go to work at a place where, you know, you, you know, he basically said you could take a traditional route. You can go to a place that hires designers and, you know, you can work your way up and, 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 and do whatever it is you want to do there. Um, or you can go to a place where they don't know they need you, 
but you know they need you so that your skills, you know, will make you a big fish in a little pond pretty quickly because you'll be there with a skill set that they don't have and they'll quickly understand that they need it. So, um, you know, here I am playing these games and, and I, I was playing this game and I thought, you know, games were black and white. Um, the controllers were things like, you know, bicycle grips on a joystick, you know, they were, cabinets were horrible, art was horrible. They, you know, uh, nothing looked like what you would imagine it, it, it should. And, um, and I, I don't know, out of ignorance, I looked at this and I go, man, these guys, they need help. <laughs> this is really bad. So, um, you know, I started thinking about it and I, on a lark, I, um, I was talking to a recruiter and, and the guy said to me, you know, um, what, you know, what do you want me to, you know, like, like, where do you want me to go? Like, where do you want me to go see if I can get you a job? And I said, well, you know, I'm playing games. And the uh, guy goes, uh, I, can get you, I can get you a call at Midway Games um, in Franklin Park, Illinois. I don't know if they'll hire you, but I can get you an interview. So, you know, cold wow. call into Midway. And, uh, and, and the guy on the other end says, uh, yeah, you know, we're hiring a bunch of different people. And, and you know, out of, with all the ignorance, you know, and arrogance of a 22-year-old, you know, I tell this guy, you know, oh, I'm a designer and you need me. <laughs> Your stuff is horrible. <laughs> this guy says, uh, this guy says to me, you know, the guy you got to talk to, uh, he's traveling right now, but he'll be back in two, three weeks. And um, and so in that time, you know, I, I took a Polaroid camera. Remember those? Yes. Oh, yeah. Take a picture, you know, here comes the photo, right? I mean, just to set, you know, I mean, just imagine that that was, you know, there wasn't running, you know, we weren't running around with phones taking pictures of things. So I get with a Polaroid camera, I ran around a bunch of different arcades that I knew and I took pictures of Midway stuff. And, um, and back in those days, a designer interviewed with a portfolio. And a portfolio was this big giant book with all your renderings and sketches and photos of your models and stuff like that, right? So you could talk about your design projects, you know, and the guy would be flipping pages in your book, you know? And uh, so I took a section of my book and my book, you know, was, my, was very, I, I think looking back, it's a miracle anybody hired me. I thought it was very uninspiring. You know, I thought I had like, I had the usual cross section of school projects and um, I, I don't think any of them were too inspiring. Do you and, still have uh, that book by chance? No, I don't think I do. I mean, I wish I did. I, I actually wish I had the Midway stuff, the, the stuff I took in the Midway. Mm -hmm. Because um, so I took the Polaroids and I took them home and I took a section of my portfolio and I restyled all their stuff. And I and I didn't know where my job would start or stop. So I designed stuff on the screen. I did art for the cabinets. I styled the cabinets. I did controllers. I did all this stuff because I didn't know, you know, there's different guys do different things, you know, just out of ignorance. And um, I mean, I knew there would be like, you know, engineers involved and stuff, but I, did, I just didn't know like who's dreaming this stuff up and, and how's it, you know, how's it coming to be? So, um, you know, I, I went for the interview and they start, you know, the first, you know, you meet the HR people and then they start bringing these guys through and, you know, 
engineers mostly and, and people are looking at my book and and a bunch of different guys come through and then the last guy is the guy that's running the show and he comes in and he looks and he and, and you know this guy says let, let me show you around and you know he takes me on a tour of Midway Games and at the time uh Midway was the largest manufacturer of, of coin-operated video games uh, in North America, and 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 might might be the world just because they they were making so much licensed stuff. And the day I interviewed us, they were making Taito Space Invaders for North America on the Midway assembly lines. And Midway had this enormous, beautiful, like fairly relatively new facility, um, and. Uh, you know, and it was like that. It was like that scene in um, in Indiana Jones where they, you know, they they're they're hauling the ark into the into the <laughs> warehouse. Except they open. They tr- this guy throws the doors open, and here's this enormous factory, really well lit, and there are space invaders on an assembly line as far as the eye could see. Wow. And I mean, it was just I, you know, I'm 22 years old. I'm looking at this. Like, Holy crap. What is this? I've never seen anything like this. You know, it's like you get whacked in the head by all of the the sound of the air tools, you know, that they're using to screw the games together. And the place is just a beehive of activity, right? There's like carts with 19-inch CRTs being rolled around. And there's, you know, people scrambling on games and putting, you know, art on things. And I mean, it's just, it's crazy. It's just like, I like I had nothing I'd ever seen. You know, I was just... But I was like, oh, wow, this is just, you know, this guy walks me back to the office area and he says, uh, son, I'm going to, I'm going to change your life. It's uh, 300 bucks a week. When can you start? <laughs> and I was, wow. You know, <laughs> first of all, I thought 300 bucks a week. I thought I was rich. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's a, a different time and place. So, you yeah. know, that's, uh, that's, as a good first job uh, back yeah, then. Yeah, yeah, right? you know, it was like it was like I, you know, nineteen seventy eight, fifty thousand dollars a year. I think I think my father was making thirty thousand dollars a year. Yeah. He'd been working all his life. <laughs> so, wow. um, I so I you know I mean I get it was an exciting time for me. I I got you know I so I got in there, and um, I at first they wouldn't let me do they wouldn't let me get near a game. It was it was all I was um, I was part I was attached to an in-house engineering group that basically we took all the licensed product, you know, because like, like, so the Japanese companies like, you know, Namco and Sega and Taito and everybody they were doing business with, they would send over uh, just uh, printed circuit boards, printed circuit boards with, with, you know, with, uh, with the ROMs, you know, for the code and the art. And uh, because it was much cheaper to send that stuff, you know, put that stuff on a on a on a ship or on an airplane in an emergency and get it here, uh, than it was to send entire cabinets. So one of the things that Midway did um, was, you know, all of that stuff got designed in house. Um, the other issue was uh, every material in Japan at the time was and and still is metric uh, measurements, and in the states you know, we were still English measure, you know, so, you know, you had a 15, a piece of cabinet would be made out of 15 millimeter plywood. And over here would be made out of three quarter inch plywood, you know, so you couldn't take, you couldn't take a a Japanese engineering drawing set and recreate their stuff just because our materials were just different. 
you know, different measurements. Our raw material was different measurements. So we would have to redesign all that stuff. So it was like, because it was, you know, it was, it was in that, in that era, it was hard to source uh, 15 millimeter plywood. You know, it was hard to source, you know, metric shafts and bearings and all this stuff. Right. So, so everything got redone over here, which is why you, I'm sure you guys have seen this and the, and you know, in, in the, the documentation of the old games, that's why a lot of times the Japanese version of Pac-Man looks nothing like the American version of Pac-Man. Right. It was, like, yeah. it, was it was a white cabinet with a, you know, different art and the, you know, the American one that everybody knows was yellow, you know, with a completely different art. Um, you know, the original one over there was called Puckman over here. It was called Pac-Man because, you know, a really smart guy in our marketing department decided that people were going to be, you know, changing the C to it <laughs> or the B yeah. to an F. It would have been a little so, easy. Yeah. So, so, um, uh, you know, I mean, so, yeah, so it's, so initially I was attached to this group and they would bring me a game and they would say, you know, like, you know, you need to style up some controls and make this thing look cool. And so I was just working on that. Um, I had, um, there was a couple of guys, you know, there was, it was a very diverse group, meaning that, you know, there were software engineers, electrical engineers, mechanical engineers, uh, you know, cable designers, artists, uh, but, you know, I was the only, uh, you know, uh, for all intents and purposes, there weren't, there weren't any other real industrial designers in the group and, and pushing ideas. Um, and, and so uh, uh, there was, you know, the, the company had these two captive R&D groups that generated ideas and new, and new games for Midway besides the licensed product. One of them was Dave Nutting and Associates, who you've heard of, whom I'm sure you've heard of. The guys that did Gorf and Wizard of War and a bunch of, and they were, uh, Dave Nutting was a, a brilliant guy. He was, he's one of my mentors. Turns out Dave's background, Dave was also an industrial designer. So he, he uh, you know, I consider him an early mentor. Um, and I didn't find this out initially when I went to work there, you know, but, uh, and then there was a group in South Florida, the guys that did Omega Race. Uh, have you ever seen that game, a vector game? Um, Omega Race, uh, 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 it was a, a really smart guy. Ron Halliburton was running this group. Uh, it was called Arcade Engineering. So those are the two captive groups. So the company was manufacturing games that were generated by those two groups and licensing all this Japanese product, right? Wow. So licensing Space Invaders and Pac-Man and, you know, I mean, Rally X and Galaxian and, you know, Galaga and all that stuff, right? So uh, so it was, you know, the company was a beehive of activity. There was a lot of stuff going on. It was, it was an amazing place to work. Um, and, you know, I started, um, started, uh, there were, we were myself and a couple other young guys, a guy named Bill Adams and a guy named Atish Ghosh. Bill Adams, software engineer, um, had a master's degree in computer science from the University of Illinois, a really bright guy. And, um, and the other guy was a guy named Atish Ghosh, who was an electrical engineer, a hardware designer. And um, he had gone to school at IIT here in the city in Chicago and, and uh, really bright guys. We'd go out to lunch and we'd play games and, and we'd talk about, you know, man, we want to make a game. You know, we like, you know, we want a shot. You know, we got to, you know, let's make a game. And, uh, um, you know, the, the, the company, you know, we were just like small fish, you know, we were just, you know, not in the, 
not in the mainstream, so to speak, right? So, uh, uh, but Bill was always pushing really hard. And um, um, he did, uh, the very first thing that we did as a group was uh, Satan's Hollow. Um, and, um, and at the time, uh, you know, Bill programmed the game. I didn't have much, I, I honestly didn't have that much to do with it. He was very, he was very clear on his vision. The, my biggest contribution of the thing was the, uh, the, the bird patterns, the flight patterns for the birds, you know, right. um, and the, like the, 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 the three frame animation of the bird. <laughs> 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 uh, so, um, you know, I, when we did that game and, and right around that time, uh, guy another guy a guy named tom neiman who was the, the company's licensing guy and, and midway for, for people that don't know it midway was owned by bally um so midway was a bally company and bally was uh uh at one point a bigger company um had uh had made uh you know cut it, it basically um um made its money in pinball um, they were, um, to this day, one of the most recognized brands in pinball in the world is, is the Bally brand, right? And, um, and, but at the time, in, in this time frame, uh, they had bought, you know, they, they bought Midway in the early 70s. They bought them probably five or six years before I joined the company. And they bought this little Midway company because um, they had, A, a footprint in uh, video games, which Bally didn't have. Um, with some of the early, you know, some of the early uh, Midway stuff that like stuff that Dave Nutting worked on, you know, uh, things like, you know, 280 Zap. Do you ever see that game? You know, it's like a, a driving game. Um, games like uh, games like Gunfight and uh, Seawolf, the submarine game. Oh, so yeah, a lot, a lot of, yeah. So, I mean, that stuff, that stuff uh, established them and they had a footprint in video games, uh, which Bally didn't have. They also had, uh, they they came from a line of of uh, they basically came from novelty games. So they had done when I was a when I was a kid in the arcades when I when I'd go to the um, the bowling alley and on Saturdays you know to bowl with with the Cub Scouts or whatever and uh, and I you know I if I had a couple of spare quarters I would hit the arcade in the uh, bowling alley and the place was full of Midway gun games. You know Midway was famous for gun games. You know, and they literally would buy, they would buy 22s and, and, and disable them and, you know, cut the barrels down and, and make sure they couldn't be used as, <laughs> as weapons. And, uh, and they would mount them on games and, and, you know, they, you know, they'd make them, you know, they'd tie them to, to potentiometers and stuff to tell where the, where the gun was. And they, they made those, all those uh, amazing electromechanical gun games. If you ever go to one of the museums, like, uh, you know, uh, Marvelous Marvins or one of those places that has a lot of that older stuff, check out the Midway gun games. I mean, they were works of art. They were really, they were the state of the art in gun games. Uh, Sega of all companies, you know, um, you know, was a company that, that dabbled in gun games quite a bit. Yeah. Back. Even the Sega master system came with a gun. Yep. So, so they, uh, so anyway, I mean, so Tom Neiman comes back to the company with the notion that Disney is doing a game called Tron, a movie about video games called Tron. And uh, they're looking for a video game partner and it's, it would be a great opportunity. So they, you know, they, 
he says this to, uh, to the company and right away the company's thinking, yeah, yeah, great idea. We'll get uh, Dave Nottingham Associates Arcade Engineering to do a game. And, um, you know, that'll be trying. And we got wind of it somehow. Um, Atish and uh, I think Bill, Bill Adams was higher up in the, in the food chain than Atish and I, and he got wind of it. And Bill, Bill comes back to us and go, Disney's doing a, you know, and I got, I got the scripts. And I'm like, where you, you know, and they tells us that they're going to have this, you know, sort of internal inf- informal competition internally to decide who makes the game. And, um, we, uh, you know, we, we're like out of our minds. So oh, we got, Oh, we got to, we got to throw our hat in the ring, you know, and we got, you know, we've got real, you know, we've got day jobs for the company doing the things that we got to do, but we really wanted to do this game. And so, uh, Bill, I think, you know, uh, begged to be included. And I think, you know, that, you know, nobody imagined that it was going to be us that was going to end up with the, with the work. I, I, you know, we, and we, we didn't imagine, you know, we were like, oh yeah, well, it'll be fun to do it. They're not going to let us do it, but it'll be fun to do it. (laughs) It'd be fun to, to, to pitch. So, um, you know, we had, uh, so, so they had this big scheme, um, they were going to put games, games had to be done at a certain time in anticipation of the premiere of the film. Mm-hmm. And they were going to put games in all of the Aladdin's castle arcades all over the country. And they were going to have a competition and the 30 winners from the competition, 30, 32, I can't remember how many, uh, from the comp, from the, from the national, uh, you know, from the, you know, the, the guys that, played off through the regionals, et cetera, would go to Madison Square Garden in New York and we'd have 30 Tron games and these kids would play off. And then we'd all go to lunch at Tavern on Green. And then we'd go to the movie premiere, meet the movie stars. And uh, so the games had to be done, uh, you know, with anticipation of the movie launch. Um, and and so we, we took all of this in. You know, we like we we took all this in. We read the scripts, and we didn't get we didn't have very many visuals. They didn't give us much in, the, in, the, in those early days. They didn't we didn't we we were imagining what things were. They didn't really show us much, and um, we went to work uh, and almost on our time because you know we had like I said we had real jobs uh, for the company, and and we generated a pitch and. We, we took the attitude, uh, we sort of, Bill's a really smart guy and he's, strat- he, you know, Bill um, is a strategy guy. And, and so Bill, you know, he starts thinking into what the other guys are gonna do. Right. Well, you know, I know Arcade's gonna bring a, a vector graphics hardware set. I know it because they have the vector graphics from Omega Race, that's what they're gonna do. And, and Nutting is going to have, like, Nutting was playing with, um, and you got to, you, you really, you got to put this in the context of the time. It must have been, this must have been 81, 82. I can't remember exactly. But Nutting was playing with a three-dimensional graphics hardware set, uh, vector graphics, three, 3D vector graphics at the time. And, and back in those days, everything was, everything was raster pixel stuff with the exception of some of the Atari uh, vector stuff and, and, you know, the occasional, you know, cinematronics did vector stuff and, but nobody was doing 3d graphics, you know? So 
Nutting had this flying game um, that was really impossible to control, but it was it was blown, you know, it was like it was blow away cool because nobody had ever seen anything like this. So it was like, you know, there was like the, the closest thing to it was the Atari tank game Battle Zone, right? Yeah. But 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 Battle Zone was, you know, very a very controlled camera and you weren't really moving in three space very much. Uh, so it, you know, it didn't really have the nutting thing was like, holy crap, this is like an open world. Like we know it today. And, and, you know, and it's 1981. So, (laughs) so, you know, so we, but the problem was, the problem was it was, it was bleeding edge. It was so bleeding edge. They couldn't even keep the hardware running. You know, they'd be, they would demo it on a, they had a table, they had a, you know, they had a folding table full of hardware hooked to a thing, you know, hooked to a, the, the controllers and the game, and they would sit you down in the seat. You'd get in this flying game and, you know, nothing would put, you know, they'd dim the lights in the room, put on Zustra, and, you know, like it was a, it was a blow away cool experience, but it was light years from being manufacturable in any reasonable way. You know, they were, they were like guys with cool spray, spraying the boards to keep them cool in the back. <laughs> Seriously, it was, it was bleeding edge. You know, that's what you get with bleeding edge. Right. So it's like, so Bill says, yeah, nothing's going to like, he's going to, he's going to reach for the sky and they're not going to be done in time. And uh, I, you know, arcades going to work with their thing. And we really ought to focus on making it look as much like, you know, Tron as we can. And we can use an off the shelf proven hardware set, Batish, you know, the third guy in our, in our little group had designed what is known as the Midway Card Rack 2, the MCR2, um, which basically ended up fielding games like Tron and a bunch of other games. Um, eventually, uh, an evolution of that hardware was made to Sprawl, and that became the, the Spy Hunter hardware. But uh, it was an interesting uh, hardware set. He took a different approach. You know, the, the Willie guys were very, it was a, the Willie system that used, you know, like the Defender Robotron system. Um, RAM based, um, you know, lots of lots of scrolling stuff. Um, Atisha's system had these had a foreground plane and a background plane. Uh, the background plane was intended to be almost static art. You could page it, you could change pages and stuff, and and page in a new new. You know, there was a, there was a, you could buffer a page and and drop it in and stuff, but it wasn't intended to be very dynamic. And it was half the resolution of the foreground stuff. And the foreground stuff was, you know, 32 pixel by 32 pixel sprites. Back then we call it, midway we call them picture blocks. So, you know, those 32 pixel by 32 pixel picture blocks. Um, and I think like, I don't know, I wanna say, I, I think it was like either 32 colors in the foreground, 16 in the background. The background was half the resolution of the foreground you could have lots of moving stuff in the foreground. You could have like, you know, all kinds of stuff moving in the foreground and that, not so much on the background. And Atish used to tell me, you've got 4,096 colors to work from. And, uh, and I'd say, wow, really? And he'd say, yeah, you would only use 16 at a time. <laughs> you know, I would be like, dude, 4,096 colors? I mean, <laughs> come on, <laughs> I can use 16 of them? or 32 or something, you know, it's, it's so, um, 
Yeah, so we, you know, we set off and we said, hey, let's do it on the MCR2. Um, I did a whole bunch of these boards uh, to convey what the screens would look like. And we had all these waves, you know, we had like seven or eight waves. When I, I don't know what we were thinking. You know, we ran out of resources at like four. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we um we had um yeah so we you know we made a pitch i designed a cabinet you know i took the the grips that i had uh, worked on for the gorf game and i uh you know we made them glow and that that was an accident also you know i had i happen to have a i was playing around with black lights because a lot of the tron stuff had this glowy look and we hadn't seen much of it but we saw like a few snippets and everything was glowing. And um, initially, the, by the way, initially the, the good guys were red and the bad guys were blue and then they swapped swap that. But so we had some snippets of stuff glowing and um, and I, ha- I was playing around with a black light trying to make stuff glow. And uh, I had the black light sitting on my desk one night and I, it was the end of the night. It was like seven o'clock at night. And, and I had, I had taken a Tron grip. We were having an issue with the switch inside the grip. It wasn't a Tron grip at the time. It was a, it was a, a Gorf grip. We were having an issue. And, you know, it's not like today where we've got all this stuff in CAD. We can make stuff transparent. We can see what's going on. You know, we can do simulations. We do stuff like that. We, we didn't have any of that. So we're, you know, working on the drawing board with, you know, paper and stuff. So, so I asked the vendor, that made the, you know, that molded the grips for us to mold it out of uh, clear styrene for me, just so I could look inside and see what was going on. And um, uh, I had one on my desk and I'm walking out my office at night, I turn off the lights and I look back and the grip, which is sitting on my desk is glowing blue because I had left the black light on and, and the, the plastic was just picking up all the light from the black light. And I was like, oh my God, that's the coolest thing. That's what I got to do. And then I turned right back around and started playing with it. Um, and that, I mean, that's the story of the, you know, that's the story of the glowing grip. And, and we, you know, then we had random problems because the most plastics have, um, uh, you know, ultraviolet inhibitors put in them so that, so the sun doesn't degrade them, you know, so they right. don't like come apart, you know, the self-destruct. Eventually they all do, by the way, even with the UV inhibitors. But, um, but um, you know, so this guy said, well, you can't make it out of styrene because it's not going to be tough enough. You got to be in polycarbonate or something tougher. And he brought it to me and put it on my desk and it didn't glow. And I was like, well, you know, this doesn't work. It, it's not glowing. And he goes, oh, uh, I know what's up. You know, it's got the UV inhibitors in it. I said, take them out. So we took the UV inhibitors out of it. We made them that way, which is why everybody's Tron grips self-destructed right. <laughs> five years, five or six years after we made the game, because they were totally exposed to the to the to the black light degrading the plastic, but they glowed. <laughs> um, so you know, we went to we went to the little playoff, and um, and I think that I think that arcade and and DNA, those guys, they were, they were so, they were established. They were the real deal. We were, you know, we were up and coming guys. We didn't know anything. And um, I, I just imagined that in their minds, they were so confident that one of them was going to end up with the game that they showed up with nothing but a conversation. 
at the, at the thing. And, you know, we had glowing grips and drawings and we had stuff moving on screen and we had, and we had a plan. Bill said, you know, we're going to do, I'm going to, you know, we're going to use the MCR2 so we don't have to design any hardware. We can start working tomorrow. And I think the management guys, you know, they saw the energy and the passion that, that you know, we were bringing to it. And they said, yeah, you guys are going to get the call. So then it was like, then, then we got the, then we got the sit down. Listen, we've made commitments. We've made commitments to Disney. This we've made, we, Bally, by the way, owned Aladdin's castle, the arcade chain. So, um, you know, but you know, they had, we've made commitments to this competition, to the Aladdin's castle. You guys cannot be late. You guys have, this game has to be done on time and you, there's no screwing around. And so, you know, we're okay. And we're going to do it. <laughs> and, um, Bill is real smart. He put um, he put a programmer on each wave. The very first wave we ran into problems with, by the way, was the the discs wave, which became the sequel. Um, you know, Discotron. Discotron, yeah. Yeah, because we we had nowhere near the the amount of resources. That one wave would have chewed up every resource in the system just by itself. <laughs> so we quickly like punted. Okay, you can't do that. That'll be the sequel. And then what you see is what, you know, um, what, what we ended up getting done and we made it. We, you know, we all, we went to the playoffs and watched the kids play and. What uh, inspired the, um, the light cycles snake, like snake style, uh, gameplay. Came from Disney. We didn't invent it. They, they had, they had basically, uh, um, you know, they had, um, they had looked at all the different games in the world and, and then taken a step in the direction of visualizing them, um, um, you know, in, in a, in a, in a more evolved way. So, right. you know, they got, they got Sid Mead to design the light cycles and they, um, and so when we, you know, when we looked at it, we hadn't, we didn't visualize it, but they described it. And we're, we, when we got it, you know, we had played the game. So we were like, oh yeah, it's a version of, you know, and, and um, you know, we had, I mean, we had, I mean, if you look at the games, um, like the stuff that we, you know, come up, we came up with, um, we got, I got a lot of, I got a lot of grief about the notion of translation and rotation on the character, right? Because um, there was a guy, really, really bright guy, the guy was in charge of all product development at, 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 for, for the entire corporation. Super bright guy, Marty Kane is his name, Dr. Marty Kane. And, um, um, you know, an engineer with a PhD, super bright. You know, this guy had, had spent time at GM and, and in a think lab and in a think tank. And, uh, um, and Marty Kane said to me, like, you know, we, we described the controls. We said, I got a joystick and I got a knob. And, you know, the joystick's going to move Tron and uh, it's going to move the tank and it's going to move the light cycle. And then the, the knob is going to like rotate his, his arm so that he can aim and rotate the, you know. Uh, and so uh, this guy says to me, he goes, yeah, translation and rotation. It's like, it's like, you know, uh, you know, rubbing your belly and patting your head at the same time. It's like, it's really hard yeah. to do. And, and um, so they made me, uh, they basically said, you better prototype that right away because 
you know, we don't think it's going to work. So Bill and I, Bill and I prototyped it. Bill, Bill said to me, he goes, make me an encoder. I think it was like 64 positions, an optical encoder. So I made him a big wheel with all these, you know, 64 slots and um, a couple of optos. Um, and uh, uh, yeah, we got it to work. So, I mean, you know, it was, there were challenges all along. I spent, uh, I spent a great deal of that winter at Disney Studios um, seeing what they were doing and then like, seeing what, you know, what we could integrate from their stuff. And, and it was a little bit of back and forth, right? They, the cabinet that shows up in, um, in the arc in Flynn's arcade in the, in the first film, uh, is one of the cabinets in the arcade is my prototype, my handmade prototype, oh, um, wow. which we flew out there and I sent me out there with it and, um, they powered it up. I think he's playing space paranoids in it. I'm not sure. Uh, I don't remember. But um, uh, yeah, it was. It, I mean, it was a it was a trip, you know. We we uh, so after that, you know, after that, now we were now we were getting some traction, and the company uh, decided that they were going to give us some resources. And Bill got to build out the group, and they put us in a warehouse offsite on Hart Street in Franklin Park, Illinois. And and so I don't know if you've heard. Uh, if you've if you ever talked to Brian Colin, um, you know, he's, uh, he's, he's one of the designers, uh, of like rampage. Right. Oh, and, wow. and so Brian, you know, Brian, um, uh, well, you, you, you'll hear, you'll hear, hear people refer to the heart street group and, and that, that, that was us. That was the heart street group. That was basically, um, in that era, that was the development studio. That was the sort of the in-house development studio. Um, at Midway Games, um, and so uh, and a lot of the, the games that came out of there were games like, like um, uh, you know, like Rampage, like Spy Hunter, like um, you know, Tron and Satan's Hollow, and so, so all the games that we played as kids in the arcade, pretty much. <laughs> well, not all of them. But there was a lot of Japanese. <laughs> pretty <stuff>. much. <laughs> yeah, a lot of Japanese stuff. But I mean, that, yeah. You know, that, um, yeah. So. Um, yeah. So what can I tell you? I mean, that, that, that was the deal. I think that uh, as uh, the spy hunter story is a similar sort of story, but it takes place some years later. Um, the, in, you know, in 84, the, the, the business crashed. You, I think you guys are aware of that. Yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And, and then Nintendo, the NES uh, kind of revitalized that. I, and a spy hunter actually was, a, I think, a, a good part of that, if I'm being yeah. honest. You know, so uh, Spy Hunter I, played a role. It was it, the, the, the thing about Spy Hunter. So, so the company had sent me. Um, it was a big perk uh, that the company used uh, with uh, designers that uh, if you did well, you got like a first class trip to the uh, Japanese game show, which was uh, called the JAMA show, uh, and it was the you know Japanese Amusement Manufacturers Association or something uh, in Tokyo. And so after Tron, um, you know, I, uh, I, I get to go. And, and so here I am, you know, I'm, I'm, I, whatever I was, you know, 25 or 26 and I'm, I'm in Tokyo and I'm running around Tokyo. I'm, I'm there to see a game show, which is like, you know, it's like amazing, right? Like that was the game show where, like, did you ever see a, uh, a game called Pengo? 
Pengo was introduced in that game, you know, Penguins. Mm. Um, it, it, I remember that. Uh, you can look it up. Um, I, I remember that from that game show. So that sort of sets it for me. But um, so I'm running around Tokyo. I bought, you know, I bought a Canon 35 millimeter camera. I bought a, a Sony Walkman. And for my Walkman, I bought James Bond's greatest hits, right? Cassette, right? So here I am flying back home from the show and um, company had a policy at the time that any flight over four hours, you flew first class. So, oh, cool. So imagine <laughs> me, I'm sitting up front, you know, <laughs> like ordering rum and Cokes, <laughs> flying first class. <laughs> Yeah, I think I'm. I think I'm. I'm, I'm on top of the world. <laughs> and um, seven forty-seven. You know, Tokyo to Chicago. That must have been uh, an experience. That was a different time for flying back then. It was too. totally. It was, it was like it, very like. Yeah, yeah. You know, it was a you cool know, thing you know, to do. It, planes were cool. It was uh, you know the, the whole that whole thing was it's it not the, not the hell you guys know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so. Were people smoking on the planes still oh yeah time? yeah that's <laughs> it's just crazy <laughs> but it's i mean hey it's you can say it's a better time also potentially yeah know? for sure yeah we've learned a lot we've learned a lot but um yeah so you know i'm, I'm sitting there and and bill and atish and i in our in our continued outings to lunch um, you know, we used to see all the movies and everything, right? So we had seen, um, you remember, remember a helicopter movie with Roy Scheider called Blue Thunder? Police helicopter, yeah. police helicopter with a lot of weapons, right? Weapons and, and trick stuff. Um, and we, we had been talking about, um, you know, hey, we should do a game with a helicopter with a lot of weapons. And and then, you know, and then, you know, the bond conversation would come up, you know, and say, hey, no, what about what about a spy game with with a car with a lot of weapons? And on the way home, that James Bond greatest hits cassette sort of cemented it in my head. You know, I started thinking about, you know, the you know, those scenes in James Bond movies where he, he's about to get into an enormous fight with overwhelming odds. Right. And, you know, like that scene and you only live twice, he's in the little helicopter. And yeah. the very first thing that happens is the music comes up. Right. They, you know, music comes up, the bond, the bond theme comes up. And then all of a sudden it's like the music has the, you know, increases in tempo to the intensity of the fight. And, you know, he's in, he's overwhelming odds. You know, he's going to, he's going to overcome, but because he's James Bond, but, but it's still like a really cool feeling. And now we take this for granted in, in games today, right? Everything we play has cinematic moments, has moments where, you know, the game designers have worked really hard to put you in that spot, to make you feel like that hero, right? That, you know, in everything we, they've done, right? In, in, in you know, in the, the armor you're wearing, the vehicle you're in, the music that's going on, the overwhelming ads, the, the you know, the, the, all those moments are highly orchestrated moments that we take for granted in the world of our games today. But if you 
roll the tape back to 1983 or whenever it is that I was working on that game, that's not how games were. Games yeah. didn't have epic moments where the music came up and, you know, the bad guys were there. You had to overcome, right? Games had, you know, uh, you know, little sounds, dun, 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 you know, just, just, it was, the world was different, right? So I was trying in my mind, I was like, you know, the Zen of driving music and, and, and combined with the notion of, you know, this, this scenario, the ability to put this guy in the scenario, right? So I come home and uh, I start talking to, um, so I'm Cuban. I came to this country as a refugee when I was seven. And, and there was another developer in our group who was also Cuban. His name is Tom Leon, and he's not with us anymore, but uh, Tom is a really bright guy. He is the programmer of Spy Hunter. And, and Tom and I would go to lunch and, and, and sometimes we would drive home together his mother would make Cuban food and we'd stop at his mother's for dinner. And we'd talk about games. We'd talk about what we were doing. Tom, by the way, when I told you that Bill Adams broke down the programming of the, of the different waves in Tron, Tom and I worked on the tank wave together. So oh, wow. we had a relationship from that and we used to drive home and talk about, you know, what, what game should we make? Bill had moved on. He had gone to work for a different company. And Tom and I would talk about, uh, and we were both sort of, you know, we were a couple of refugee Cuban kids, children of the Cold War for all intents and purposes. Yeah, that's a, that's a that's an amazing story. First off, you know that it, two Cuban refugees like ended up working on a spy yeah. hunter. You know what I mean? Right. It's just that's freaking cool. You know. Well, that's 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 real, man. That's what happened. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. So we started talking about this game and. We didn't, we had other games that we were working on and there were sanctioned projects that the company had. And the whole Spy Hunter thing started out with us just screwing around. So I had a, I had a, a like an 18 inch roll of drawing paper and we had, you know, we had, I'd taken the drawing paper and I'd drawn the road and and little little events on the road, you know, like this happens here and this happens here. And this thing, initially, when we started this game, we were we were in the old Hart Street office, and and Tom was in a cubicle, and and he had taken this thing and he had put it up along the, the walls of his cubicle, you know, this whole you know paper pinned up, you know, the road. Right. Yeah. And we started working on this thing sort of on the side. And uh, we initially digitized the James Bond theme uh, from that cassette that I bought in Tokyo. And we thought it was going to be a James Bond game. And, you know, we that's where we were going. And Tom Neiman, the same guy that got the Tron license, came back and he said, I can't get you James Bond. And I, I can't remember whether it was an issue with the music or the films. Or I don't remember what it was, but he couldn't get it. So he said, how about Peter Gunn? And now, now I knew Peter Gunn. Your generation doesn't know Peter Gunn. Your generation thinks Peter Gunn is Spy Hunter. Because, <laughs> I mean, that's, that's what you relate to it. But so Peter Gunn was a TV show with, I think, Roger Moore. Was it Roger Moore? No, it wasn't Roger Moore. Somebody else. Another that, Roger Moore was probably James so Bond. Roger Moore, 
Yeah. I think Rod, no, Roger Moore was the saint or somebody like that in in the in in that era. Um, but whatever. So we we switch over to Peter Gunn. We hated it. We were like because we had been playing it with James Bond. So we put in the Peter Gunn thing. The Peter Gunn thing was very repetitive. And we had a sound guy, his name's Bob Luby, who um, said, hey, what if I do these jazz riffs? And, and back then hardware and sounds was really tied together. Um, you, had to, you, had, you almost had to be a hardware engineer and a musician to, to make sounds in that era. And, um, and he said, you know, we're going to do these jazz riffs and then the hardware is going to randomly tie them together in between Peter Gunn so that it doesn't get repetitive and boring, right? Because I had come up with this thing where you only get, you only get music when you have weapons because that's when we're going to bring in the bad guys, right? So you got to collect all your weapons, get all your stuff. And if you have weapons, you get music. Yeah, the only weapons you by default get are the machine guns. You get you don't get any other stuff. So um, we that's where we were going, and uh, and so and that's and that became really cool. So we actually trademarked that that hardware set. It was called the artificial artist sound system because because the system randomly put those pieces of music together and always always started with Peter Gunn, ended with Peter Gunn, but the stuff in between, like if you were really good and you had music and you were driving for a long time with the music, you had these jazz riffs in between to sort of not make it monotonous and boring and uh, uh, et cetera. So the, the truck's another one, right? The truck is, you know, I always tell, I always tell people that people ask me, you know, how do you get to fun? How do you get to games? And games are all about iteration, right? We can all imagine fun in our heads, but the, rea the reality is that making games, you have to iterate. You have to iterate like crazy. And you're, you're not coming up with the next great idea or the solution to your problem, staring at your screen, not gonna happen. You're not, it's not gonna come to you on a bus. I mean, you may have a direction that you thought of, but you're not gonna solve the problem doing it that way. You're gonna, you gotta solve the problem by doing. You have, to, you have to make things, you have to try things. That's how you solve the problem. So the, so the, the truck, Tom hated the truck. I hated the fact that the car was growing weapons at checkpoints. So you, get, you hit a checkpoint, right. car would grow weapons. I thought this is the most unnatural thing in the world. I said like, what, you know, how did he grow weapons? Where did he get more bullets? How did he, you know, how does this work? And Tom is like, what do you, what do you care? It's a video game. I was like, no, no, I care. It, it, it's gotta make sense to me. <laughs> and, yeah. um, and so, uh, you know, I had, I, of course, Knight Rider in that time frame. Mm -hmm. the, you know, the Firebird went into a truck right into the, you know, with the, you know, with the scientist girl that, you know, fixed up kit. Right. And, uh, and so I said, Hey, why don't we get a truck? whenever you call, you know, you got to call the truck up and, and go in the back of the truck to get your weapons. And he fought me on this. I made the truck and uh, we put it in the game and we tried it. And a funny thing happened. It became an element of strategy, right? Trying to call up the truck, stay alive and deal with whatever the enemy threat was with whatever weapons you had until you got the, the correct weapons or more weapons became a thing in the game which we would have never discovered had we not gone down the path of, you know, like 
he agreed to, okay, all right, I'll put it in. All right, I'll put it in. And we put it in and it turned out to be a cool thing, right? But if you, if you, you know, that's why I say, you're going to get to solutions by making stuff. You're not going to get to solutions by thinking about it. Well, Has there, was there, was there a game like, like Spy Hunter really before it? Because, I, you know, going back, I can't really think of, there were of driving one that games. was even like that. It, no, yeah, were, but it was like shooting and driving at the same time. And as also like kind of an adventure game as well, I, I would call it. Um, yeah. I mean, you know, a um, couple of the, you know, the, uh, couple of the other guys, you know, like contributed the boat a guy named Steve Olstead said, Hey, we should, you know, let's turn the car into a boat. <laughs> and, then, <laughs> and then it became, and then a plane. Right. So if you, if you do a, if you do a, a, a dump of the uh, graphics uh, ROMs uh, in that game, you'll find a plane in there. Uh, you, nobody knows why it's oh, there. Wow. We just never got to that. So, so the story, you know, what happened is, so now times are getting bad. The company's laying people off. And we're not making 1100, you know, we were making like in the days that I described when I joined the company, we we're making like 1100 coin operated video games a day. There was like a line of semis with raw material uh, lined up on one end of the building and, and a line of semis with finished games leaving on the other end of the building. And the, there were so many of these semi trucks that it disrupted the traffic patterns in Franklin Park, the little city that Midway was in. Um, and the, and the, the city had to like, like uh, you know, put special cops in different places, everything just to direct traffic around these semis. Uh, so this had all begun to implode, you know, the, the, you know, the business, is, business is crashing and we're not making 1100 games a day, we're making 100 games a day and management's panicking. We're trying all kinds of things, you know, like, I think I, I was building a, um, they wanted me, my real job at the time, they wanted me to build an ele electromechanical baseball game. That's what I was working on when we were doing Spy Hunter. And, and, um, and, and then, they, so they would do these sweeps uh, of the development studio to look at product, the executives. And one day they come by on a, on a show and tell, you know, show and tell day, everybody's getting, every show we're doing and Spy Hunter is still not a thing. Nobody knows, you know, it's like my boss, our boss knows we're doing, we're fooling around with a driving game, but, and we've been working on it for months, but we don't, you know, we, it's not real. It's not a sanctioned project of the company. And uh, these guys are, at, they get, they get all done with the, the, the day of reviews of all the games in progress. And they're standing in, they're standing in front of the elevator. And I happen to be going to get a candy bar or something. And my boss sees me and he says, Hey, can you guys show that driving game you're working on? And we're like, uh, yeah, we could do that. So uh, give me 10 minutes. So I go back and Tom, they want to see the game. He's like, what? You know, like, no, we, we got to do something. We got to show them the game. All right. So these guys, they, you know, this, this, this uh, group of uh, execs comes back to Tom's cube where we got the game and we demo the game and the guy says, Ah, when when can we get this on test? And we're like, whoa, wait, on test? We're, we're no, you guys don't understand. We're 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 <laughs> we're months away, fellas. This is like nothing. <laughs> this is like unfinished. It doesn't work. <laughs> and they're like, no, no, we got to get this on test. So shit. Okay. So then all of a sudden, now we got people. Now they're like, my boss says, okay, 
throw some people at this thing. So then all of a sudden we got all these artists, we got all this stuff. We're like, we're moving. Now we're moving. So we, we went on test probably, I don't know, two and a half months after that, after that date. Um, and, um, and, and, and it did well enough that then, then it was a scramble to polish. Then the next thing they want to do is make it. And, and then, then we were like fighting for every, every minute to, you know, polish it and make it right. And, and which is why there's no, uh, no airplane mode in the, in the game. Um, no wow. flying mode in the game. Um, so yeah, it was, and, and then 1984, you know, I, like I thought, I thought the business was over. I, I left the company. Um, I left the company before Spy Hunter hit the assembly lines. Um, um, just totally disappointed thinking that, you know, oh, this is all for naught. This is going away. And, um, and uh, I went to work for a consulting firm uh, as a toy inventor. And I invented toys uh, for all the major toy companies for the next five years. But, but I mean, that was like, uh, yeah, that was so, so it was, uh, I mean, it, it's, it's interesting when I think back about that time, it's almost bittersweet because I, I, I wasn't there to sort of uh, drink in the success of Spy Hunter. Right. Um, but uh, and if you look at, if you look at the side of the game, um, you know, back then they were like, I think the company was like really, scared of making us famous and and so they wouldn't let us sign our stuff so all of our names and initials and everything everybody that worked on a game is like hidden on that that art oh, panel really? side. Wow. Yeah. so if you look at it you know the car is called an interceptor because i had a i had a honda interceptor superbike at the time and and uh it's called an interceptor g6155 6155 is my birthday and g is my initial and to this day, I mean, like the Lego guys made a, a like a little Spy Hunter, um, a Lego dimension set, right? And they put G6155 on the, right on the, on the toy. And they don't know what that is. They just know it's like the Spy Hunter thing. <laughs> That's cool, man. Oh, wow. That is awesome. So then, I mean, that was your way back then of getting your little Easter eggs in the games. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like if you look at, I think today. it's the, um, the Gorf grip. Um, which really the, the concept of the grip and the, and, and the flight stick is really belongs to Dave Nutting, but, but I styled that grip and, and carved it with my hands and, and, and drew it and everything. Uh, that, that grip is um, in the back of that thing. There's like a thing that looks like an LED panel um, that lights up and uh, my, initial, my name's in there. If you, if you look at those, if you ever find one of those, it's like my name's hidden in there. So yeah, <laughs> oh, we used to hide our names, wow. used to hide our names on all that stuff. That is so, so cool. I, you said you went to make toys for five years and or in, invent yeah, toys. Toy is there, is there a, any notable toys that you may have invented that we may know of from from that? Yeah, I mean, period? I can send you guys uh, some video links to stuff. I did a I did these trucks for Galoob called Crash and Bash. I did um I did a some foam darts that um, are sort of like a reusable water balloon for Tonka. I did uh, I did a, um, a a bad guy action figure for the the Rambo toy line. Oh, um, I did a couple of cool. uh, I did a couple of Voltron uh, vehicles, bad guy oh, wow. Voltron vehicles. Uh, so yeah, the toy invention game is a whole different animal. You know, it's like um, yeah. that's just like I worked for a consulting firm. All we did was invent stuff and then license the ideas to the big toy companies. And it was a place called Marvin Glass and Associates and the most famous 
uh, uh, toy inventors in the world. And uh, they um, uh, collectively over time had invented, had, you know, they invented Lightbright, Simon, Operation. I mean, you just name it. It's yeah. like the, the, the who's who of, of, of toys. And, uh, um, and so, you know, it's, that's a different game. Uh, that's like uh, invent something uh, prototype it as fast and quick as you can and uh, um, and then pitch it and then you never know it's a, you got to have really tough skin because the rejection rates are super high so you, whenever you gotta, I think of uh, toy invention I always think back to big and Tom Hanks yeah. when he got to go work in the corporate uh, yeah, toy uh, manufacturer and yeah so I mean I was there ideas. like you know whatever, whatever that was 80 fall of 84 to 88 mm -hmm. in that time frame you know and uh, that's what I did as I invented toys and um, it was great fun it was a it was a super uh, you know super talented studio uh, great place to work um, you know you did so you the coolest thing about that place was that nobody told you what to work on so whatever you did that day is what you did and if you were a self-motivated guy and you could, you could just constantly be thinking about stuff and making stuff and trying things, you'd be very successful. If you, if you, you know, some guys, um, they're not worse because of it. They're just different. Some guys need to work in a structure They need, you know, I give me a project, I'll do it, et cetera. Um, so, so that place had a big revolving door. A lot of guys came and went through that place because you couldn't, not everybody could hang in that, you know, it's like, nobody's going to tell me what to do today. And I could, I could fuck off or I could actually do something. And um, so you got to be, you kind of, you know, sort of constantly jamming on, uh, on stuff. Um, you got to average a lot of, a lot of concepts, a lot of working concepts at the end of your year. Um, and, you know, you, you got to do, you know, one a week, you got to average one a week to place three. And of those three, uh, two of them may fall out of bed. And then there's no, there's no, you know, in the process, right? Like the moms may kill it in, in, uh, in, in, in focus testing, or it may fall out in, in, uh, in, in safety testing, or the stores might, you know, Walmart might say, yeah, we don't like it. And, uh, and so you just never know. So if you actually get on the shelf with a toy, uh, with a toy idea and a toy concept, you're still at the mercy of the audience to make, to say yay or nay, right? Just, just cause you got there doesn't mean anything. So it's a tough, tough business. It's even tougher today because kids uh, get into electronics so soon, right? They're into screens right away. And they're, they're spending a lot less time with conventional toys and uh, traditional, you know, hard plastic stuff. And, um, um, so it's, it's, it's a really hard business. I, um, I feel bad for a lot of the guys that I know that have struggled in that business uh, as of late. Um, so, uh, yeah, but no, I, I did that. Um, I did, I was, on, I, I designed a bunch of novelty games, you know, uh, ticket spitters for, uh, different companies, um, uh, after that time. And I did, um, I started, it was during that time that I got involved with pinball. I, I looked at a pinball machine and I, you know, I'm used to thinking along the lines of if you, I, I don't know what it is today, but back in my day, you could look at an item on a shelf at Toys R Us. And if you divide that by divide the price by five, that's probably what it, you know, costs to, to you know, to make it. So, you know, if you got an item that's 1595, you know, divide that by five and, and that's what the designer is working with. You know, that's what it's got to cost. So, you know, here I am trying to make something cool with a 
a nine volt battery, an LED, and a you know a couple of gears. And and I looked at a pinball machine. I was like, wow, look at this. Check this thing out. And at the time, it was like, you know, this is a thirty five hundred dollar toy. So this is this will be fun to make. I, I wasn't that into pinball. I was uh, more fascinated by the notion of creating this giant toy. And so uh, I got into it and then it, you know, it got in my blood. And so, you know, today I'm, I'm the chief creative officer for Stern Pinball. We're the biggest pinball company in the world. We have probably 90% of the world market in pinball. And, um, and you know, I run a studio, about 50 guys, uh, uh, guys and girls. Um, and uh, they, um, they, you know, design and, and generate all the company's products. Um, so, but, but in between, I, you know, I went to work at, I went back to, I went back to work at, uh, at Williams Electronics designing my first uh, pinball machines. It was like the early nineties. I was there, uh, up until the two thousands and early two thousands, at which point, uh, Williams got out of the pinball business and I was out of a job and, um, a guy whom you may know, Mark Turmel um inventor of NBA Jam and uh NFL Blitz and many many other games right famous game designer was a friend of mine and and Mark Mark uh, said why don't you come over to Midway and um you know I'm I'm starting up this thing called the sports division over the top Midway Sports and uh you know help me run this thing and um so him and I for the next uh I don't know probably nine years worked on um the Xbox and PlayStation versions of NBA ballers. Um, you know, the NBA wow. licensed uh, over the top street basketball game. Oh, wow. So, That's really awesome. Yeah. yeah. And after that, I, I, during that time on, on the side, I was doing just for, for the hell of it. I, um, Gary Stern had called me up and said, Hey, could you, would you, uh, would you do some pinball ideas? And so I said, sure. I, you know, so I'm, I'm you know, I, I went to see Ken Fidesz and I got his running, um, midway at the time, I said, Hey, do you care if I do this? And he said, no, we don't compete in that business anymore. Um, so I don't care what you do on your time. And, um, so I started doing games for Gary on the side. Um, and, and that's what, that's what, that's what opened the door to the relationship I have with them today. And, and then in, uh, 2011, I went to work there, uh, full-time, uh, running uh, product development, um, in the role that I'm in now. So, I mean, that's, that's the arc of my story, right? So I did, coin operated vids. I did toys. I did uh, novelty games. I did Xbox, PlayStation stuff, and I did pinball. So a lot of weird stuff. And, um, you know, I, I, it's kept, I think I'm 65 and I think it's kept me, it's helped to keep me young. <laughs> I, you, yeah. you look young for your, for your age, man. So thank you. Know, you. Good, good, good for you. on I'm going gray. Well. I'm going gray. There's no hiding it. Yeah. Well, I got gray going on my goatee already and I'm, I'm half your, half your age. And no, I'm just kidding. You know, I'll tell you, I, I could not, I honestly, I, I could not be doing, I could not be doing the job I do today. Um, my studio is, is incredibly diverse in terms of talent. I have, I have designers, I have software developers, I have uh, of every sort, right? I have gameplay guys and I have, um, you know, I have tools guys and I have effects guys and I have, uh, I have the equivalent of a video game a development art team because we have an LCD screen on our games. And so we have to generate content for that. So I have an entire art, uh, you know, computer graphics, art team, animators, modelers, shaders, environment guys, you know, all that stuff that goes into a video game team. 
I have mechanical engineers, I have electrical engineers, I have cable designers, I have technicians. Uh, I have two-dimensional illustrators, artists, you know, that do all the, all the, all the flat art. And I, I don't think I could be running or managing this group had I not been in all the places I've been, um, you know, uh, throughout my career, right? Because this thing that we make, this very complex modern day pinball machine has elements of everything I've worked on. It's got three-dimensional molded toys that interact with things and transform and do things. It's got software and it's got, you know, it's got gameplay dynamics and, and rule sets and game progression. It's got, you know, art, it's got, you know, I mean, it's got everything that all of those experiences, right? I mean, when I was at Midway, you know, and I'm, I'm managing a, 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 you know, a big development group of, of, uh, of software developers, I learned how to manage a software project of that scale. Um, all of these things, all these different things have sort of informed what I, what I do, my skill set, and, and so um, I'm blessed that, you know, it's just sort of happenstance that, that all that stuff kind of landed, um, you know, exposed me to this and landed me where I am, you know. Um, we actually had some questions in the chat already. Uh, one of the questions was from Infinite, and he asked, you know, um, in your early days, uh, getting into video games, what were some of your influences? Right. So, um, you know, it was a, it was a heady time, meaning that like, there was so much cool stuff happening. It's not like, so games today, by the way, I still play games today. So I don't, I don't mean this to sound as a slight to the games we play today because the games we play today are, are um, they're different, but they, it, they all fall into genres and a fresh play mechanic is, is kind of tough to come by, right? And what do I mean by that? They're drivers, they're shooters, they're, you know, uh, RPGs, they're, you know, they're sports, they're, you know, they, they fall into a genre, right? And now, now, now turn, you know, turn the dial back to 1982 and you got Missile Command, Joust, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, asteroids, you, you just name the, the, you know, the pantheon of amazing stuff and they're all different, you know, S Super Cobra, uh, um, Zaxxon, uh, you know, I mean, just, just start naming games for, you know, start in 1978 with Space Invaders, 77 with Space Invaders and name games from 1977 to 1986, right? Just, you know, Centipede, Battle Zone. Just, I, I, when, you, when I say these words, your brain is envisioning completely dynamically diverse play mechanics. Every yeah. game. It doesn't mean that Pac-Man didn't spur a thousand maze games. It did. It doesn't mean that Space Invaders didn't spur a bunch of derivative clones, it did. You can say that Galaga, Galaxian were informed by the work of space invaders. Can't, you can't not say that, right? But there was a moment in time when you were seeing fresh play mechanics, Missile Command. What, tell me what informed that. <laughs> you know, 
uh, centipede. You know, I mean, it's like you could maybe you could make some analogy to Space Invaders, but you know, so think about that. So I mean, that when you say what influenced me, that influenced me. The fact that every you know every year the wave of games that was being introduced was dynamically. I was a huge fan of the Atari stuff. I was a huge fan of the Williams stuff, right? Defender, Stargate, Robotron, Joust. That Williams stuff, by the way, those guys, you know, Eugene Jarvis, Larry DeMar, good friends of mine. And and, and I, I didn't know them then, right? But that's what I was putting my money in. I, I was, you know, I mean, it's like there was a bar. There was a, a, there was a punk bar called Exit that I used to go to in Chicago. And they had a defender. And the bartender had my number because every time I walked in there, he would tell me there was another guy that went there. And I didn't meet him until many, many months after I went there, but we would trade off the top position, a high score table on that game. And I would walk in, the bartender would say to me, hey, he knocked you off. And, and he knew I wasn't leaving until I knocked him off or try, you know, tried, right? So, so I mean, those were the games that, um, you know, yeah, that's the stuff that influenced me. Oh, that is wow. awesome. Uh, I also, you know, I grew up in a time uh, in the early 80s, and my father, he loved arcade games and he loved pinball. So we always had, like, in his restaurants, we always had different rotations of different arcade games, and uh, one being Spy Hunter, which we really loved. I mean, my father and I. Um, and I used to play it constantly. Like, nobody else in the restaurant could ever play that game because I hogged it because <laughs> I loved it so much. I just love, you know, my favorite thing on that game was like the little red truck that came and it just, it was for some reason, it reminded me of like, uh, and, and this is coming from a child's mind. It reminded me of like Optimus Prime dropping off like a James Bond car. So I was, I always felt like that uh, Optimus Prime was helping me out in the video game. <laughs> That's awesome. That is awesome. Yeah. And, I mean, uh, that's the stuff, I'll tell you what, that, that the most, one of the most rewarding uh, parts of my career is, uh, is hearing these stories um, about games and toys and different things of different genres that, that I've worked in, right? So, um, you know, I hear, the, I hear stories about some of the pinball machines that, I, that I've designed um, that are as uh, sort of um, passionate as what you described, right? Uh, your love of that game. I, I hear the same thing. You know, I, I had somebody just come up to me, uh, not long ago and talk to me about, um, they had, they didn't know it was a toy that I did. They were just talking, they just heard that I did toys and they started talking to me about toys. And it turns out that, you know, this, this, this little, this little mask thing that he had was like a thing that, that, you know, I helped influence. And so, so it's like, you know, I mean, that, that stuff is what, that, that's what makes it worthwhile for me and makes it very exciting to do what I do. Well, awesome. you also, uh, I'm sorry, I'm real quick. No, I, I was just saying wanna... that's awesome. <laughs> so I don't know if you know this, but the layout that is designed for the interviews on this show, um, the guy who designs it, his nickname is Graphic Guy, but his, you know, his real name is Jay. And it, it, first off, 
I just want to say he's a huge fan of some of the stuff that you've worked on, includes Satan's Hollow was like one of his favorite games of all time. But the layout that he designed for this interview uh, format that we have on Four Guys Recorders is actually influenced by the glow of the light in Tron. Cool. Very cool. So he just wanted me to say that um, when you were on the show. That's awesome. I can see that. <laughs> yeah, and then um, I want to I want to talk about pinball with you too because I I also grew up loving pinball. Um, in in my father's early days, you know he he was born um in '44, and when he was growing up uh, in parts of New York City after he came to America, pinball was like huge. Um, it was almost like in a way pinball was like its own racket because every restaurant. Every bar, every club had pinball machines across his like his whole block uh, in Brooklyn. Everybody had pinball machines, and he was obsessed with pinball to the point where even at home, I was three years old, four years old, and I was playing pinball in our basement because he actually owned several pinball tables. Um, and I don't know if you remember this one, but one that he really loved, it was a 1776 table. Yep. And it had like the, it was almost like a wooden type of, um, like the number change and everything. It wasn't yeah, like all another game. Yep. Yep. Yeah. I mean, you know, pinball is, um, has a, first of all, you know, we've played a big role in bringing it back and, 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 and it's back and it's back in a big way. And, and I think that it has, it has such a passionate fan base just as passionate as the as the video game guys in a different you know in a just just in a different way you know but 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 um, yeah it's, it's it's its own thing it's um, I think I I like that I've you know I, I like that I've been able to work and and had the fortune the good fortune to be successful in these different mediums um, the things I learn in one I take to the other right so it's kind of like in the end. It's all about how do I engage people? How do I entertain them? And, and I've, I've learned something about entertaining them in all these different um, work scenarios, right? Um, you know, how you interact with a toy uh, is, is different than how you interact with a pinball machine, different than how you interact with a video game. And yet there's a thread in that I have to engage you. I have to want you to... I have to take you on some journey that's going to you know, allow you to play it your way and still have fun and discover things and evolve it and, and establish that relationship that you describe between you and, and, and the car and the, and the truck and Spy Hunter, right? It's like that, that's, that's what it's about. And so all the stuff, it, it all kind of, you know, it, it, it helps my mind to to have spent time in all those places. And uh, one of the things with my dad, we when we used to go to the Jersey Shore, is that there used to be like pinball tables there as I was growing up too. And he used to play a game with me where he would give me one quarter or two quarters, depending on the pinball machine. And he'd say, see how long this lasts you. And it was almost like a challenge because my dad was really good at pinball, 
and he could go on maybe with a quarter or two quarters. Yeah. He could probably go on for like yeah. four hours on a table sure. or longer. Sure. Yeah. And he used to have this competition with me. And every time my initials came up higher than his, he'd have to play again until he beat me. So it became and, like no, a, a fun thing. The, the first, the first uh, rule of pinball is keep the ball in play, right? It's the very yeah. first rule in the, you know, it's, you know, games aren't games that they don't have rules, right? You can't have a game that doesn't have rules. And the very first rule of pinball is keep the ball in play. Stay in the game. If you don't stay in the game, you can't do anything else. You, know, you can't score, can't achieve things, you can't do progression, you know. Oh, it's just, it's such a beautiful thing. I, it's like, pinball to me is is like a, a fantastic masterpiece of art. You got the you got the physics of the game, you got the electronics in, in most of the pinball games, you got the sounds, and and then you got two flippers, or, you know, basically two flippers, but sometimes like double flippers in the back and whatnot, but yeah. Yeah. it all comes together to create this unique experience. And it's just, for me, every time I look at a pinball machine, it's so fascinating because the glow of the lights, the sound of the pinball, um, and some, when you earn that extra game or the extra ball, that big, loud popping sound, like you never forget those things. And it always feels exciting. Like every time, no matter how old I've gotten or what, it's just, it's the same excitement of just like me being a kid walking in Toys R Us every time I touch a pinball table. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's beautiful to see a row of those things, right? Oh yeah. Let's say a, like a, a row of modern stern tables, you know, with the LCDs and everything. I mean, it's like, and all the different colors and all the things we do with them. You know, it's just it's just an absolute uh, amazing thing. Um, where, where does the design process actually start with a with a table? You know. <laughs> right. So um. So it's like. For me, it's like, it's always been really passionate. It's really very important that the design teams are passionate about the things they're building, meaning that, you know, you have to be into the theme. So it's like, you know, otherwise, <clears throat> you know, you're, you're just not gonna get the best out of people if they're not into the theme they're making. Um, so um, it's a combination of things, right? The teams think about games they would wanna make the licensing guys come back and um, because of the world we live in in the modern era, everything really needs to be a license. So they come back with potential licenses and we talk about it and, and, and uh, you know, some combination of what does the company think is a good fit for the product mix that year and what do the design teams want to build? Um, the design teams are very diverse. Um, they are, as I said, uh, you know, I mentioned all the different disciplines. They're they're led by uh, the two guys that are sort of creatively in charge of of forming and guiding the product are the designer and the lead developer, and and then but you know there's like a project artist, huge influence to the look of it, what you know the feel of it, um, the the guys that do all the all the LCD graphics, all the feedback stuff. Um, I mean the sound designer. Uh, I mean, it's basically, it's a, it's a, it's a relatively, the core team is a relatively smart, uh, a small team, seven or eight guys, the peripheral team supporting those guys is much bigger, right? So, um, you know, the computer graphics group might have 10 guys working on our project. Um, and, and yet there's, but there's a lead guy that's associated to the team. That's like coming back to the, to, you know, and the same thing can be said for the software engineers there, you know, the lead developer, 
might have some guys supporting him on different things. You know, this guy, maybe this guy's, somebody's making him a tool. Maybe somebody else is doing something else. Um, and, you know, somebody, somebody's doing light shows, somebody's doing, you know, a, a particular feature. Um, but it's, it's a really complex device, you know, because there's the, the physics of the real world, right? The, um, you, you can't always just fix the software, you know, you know, there's like, you know, I have what we have real, real things like electromagnets, you know, they, they, they heat up, I have to do, we have to duty cycle them, we have to, we have to worry about, you know, how they are performing, how are they doing what they need to do, we have motors and devices and mechanisms and, we have all these different scenarios. You know, what do you do when the ball is stuck? What do you do when this is broken? Does the game continue to play? Um, and so, and you know, the, the designers worrying about, you know, what's the progress? The designer and the lead developer are worrying about what's the progression through the game. What are those big epic moments that we're going to expose the player to? Um, what are the, you know, what are the big hooks, the big feel goods? Um, all of the things that go into um, in, very similar to the things that are going into a AAA title today, right? It's just a different medium with the complexities of real, you know, materials and and the um, you know the impact of things, uh, you know, the the kinetics of the ball, um, all of that stuff. I mean, it's it's a complex product, and people don't realize it. But when you go go up to a modern pinball machine. Go up to state of the art. I mean, it, the stuff we make is state of the art in, 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 in the business. And you go up to one of our pinball games and just stare at it. Get somebody to, if you're ever, next time you're in an arcade and, and it, you know, if you get a chance, take a look at somebody when, when one of those games is being serviced and the play field's up uh, or when the, when, where the backlash is out of the game, take a look at what's inside. I mean, um, it's, it's impressive and it can be daunting if you've never seen all that stuff. Yeah. Yeah, I'm blown away just when I see him from the outside. I mean, just it looks uh, like there's so many pieces to have to come together to create something that is functional when you have that many moving parts, right? Yeah, I mean, it's and like, that's that would a, be the challenge. It's about it's about a 14 month development cycle. Oh, wow. Yeah, wow. it's about 14 months and. Um, um, like I said, the, you know, you have a core team of about seven or eight guys, but the, there's a peripheral bunch of guys that are supporting, you know, guys and girls that are supporting that effort. Um, and, um, and, and then, and then of course, you know, we, we have 110,000 square feet behind O'Hare airport in Elk Grove village, Illinois. That's our manufacturing facility. That's where the studio is also. And, and, um, and, you know, we churn out, all these pinball machines there. And, and so there's the manufacturing elements integrated with the fact that you're designing a, this fun thing, you know, that that's another element that we have to, you know, we have to make them cost the right amount. We have to make them reliable at the fit in boxes. They go all over the world before COVID we, we, we exported probably 40% of our product to Western Europe and Australia. Um, um, and, and our business is very, we have, different price points and we have a commercial business, the machines that you find at a barcade or bowling alley or, you know, movie theater lobby. Uh, and then we have a home business, uh, consumer business, people that are hobbyists that own them in their house. And, and when, when our commercial business got hit because of COVID and those, you know, locations had to close down, our uh, consumer business exploded because people are stuck at home. And, and we're like, you know what? They can't go on vacation. They've got, you know, 
they've got these, they've got the money they were going to spend on vacation. They bought a pinball machine. So there's a lot of the, so we've had, we've been very fortunate. We've kept this, you know, we've kept the company healthy and we've managed to, we were shut down for three months this year. The government shut us down for three months. And so and we have a big backlog of back orders that we're trying to fill, fulfill now. We're back up and running. My studio, you know, we, we had to do what everybody else did, right? We had to figure out how to work remote. You know, we, we you know, and, and our, you know, our, I mean, I miss, I miss the energy, the buzz of the studio, all these different teams working on different stuff. Guys asking you to come and play, you know, come and play this game. Check, check this out. What do you think? You know, all of that sort of those, those kind of hallway conversations about how to solve a problem. The, um, the, just, a, just the, the, the activity, you know, guys screwing games together, guys making, you know, parts, the 3D printers running in the corner, you know, all the stuff, right? That energy and that buzz, I miss that a lot. And so now it's all happening in diverse little spots. And then now we're, you know, we're starting to slowly come back together. Um, and it'll be some time before we're back, you know, like everybody else. Um, but, um, and we've learned, you know, we've learned a lot of things. I, I think that we've learned um, a lot of things about ourselves and about a process and, and how we make games. Um, and I think, uh, you know, we'll take those back. We'll be better. We'll be stronger. Um, and, and, you know, we learn from it, right? Yeah. Uh, so I have two uh, questions for you. Uh, do you have a favorite either pinball or game that you worked on? Um, and do you have a favorite modern game that you like to play? Cause you did say you still play games. Yeah. 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 So, um, so, you know, it's tough. It, it's tough for me to, um, it, it's tough for me to pick a favorite, um, because games are like, my games are, they're, they're kind of a, a moment in time. Yeah. Like I can stand in front of my, any one of my games and play them. I don't care what it is. And my, my brain goes back to that time, all the things that were going on in my life and all the challenges and all the things that I faced when I was making the game, I can remember that stuff. And so it's, it's an interesting kind of like, it's just a, it's, it's this little snapshot of time uh, exposed by the game. Right. Um, I have favorites over the years. I think that of my, of my own games, um, a few years ago, the last game that I actually got to design, uh, where I, where I, you know, um, I wasn't supposed to be designing it, but we got into, we, we got into some trouble with, with some other things. And, and I had to jump in and, 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 and do this game, uh, was Deadpool, Deadpool pinball. And, and, um, and that game to this day still has me hooked. And that's, that's, wow. that's good historically over the years. I mean, you know, I like my monster bash game a lot. Um, um, and, and, and clearly the video games, you know, I mean, I, um, I still, every once in a while, the original, the original NBA ballers is the best NBA ballers game that we made. And, um, and, and sometimes I have kids come over and, <clears throat> and I'll, and I'll play that game with them. And because kids can pick up anything and play it. Right. Yeah. And, 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 um, and that game is still like, I mean, that's, that game holds up, you know, and it, and it's like, yeah. you know, you gotta, you stop after you play that game for a little while, you stop, look, you look past the graphics, you look past, you know, cause I mean, that's the first, first thing that hits you is wow. You know, video games have come such a long way, but, um, and you know, I mean, it's like, 
I don't, um, yeah, so it's, it's, it's hard to say a favorite uh, of the modern era games. So I play, you know, I play a lot of driving games. Um, I, I was a big fan. You know, I was a big fan of Halo and a big fan of the Gears of War series. Um, so every once in a while, like when those guys have come up with, you know, some, some new derivative, I've picked it up. Um, I'm so busy nowadays. I, I have very little time for this. I do, I, I do still, um, I find time for, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a car nut, if you can't tell. Uh, yeah. for my car collection. Uh, so I, uh, I still, I, I still find time, find time for Forza and I still find time for uh, Gran Turismo from time to time, very, you know, diverse products, but I, I, I still enjoy them both for the things that they are. Yeah. Uh, and I, and I have a, I have a nasty habit of, I have to have the latest console. Um, yeah. Even if I, you know, even if I play it three times a year, um, sometimes it takes me a long time to, it took me forever to get, you know, to really put some miles on Xbox ones. Um, you know, I just, I just, I, I bought them right away. And then, and then, and then like, and I bought a bunch of games and they sat there and then, but you know, like, uh, modern video games for me are like, I'm a big fan of, of, of campaign modes. I'm not, you know, like I don't, I'm not, you, you will not find me, uh, playing, uh, online with kids or anything else, you know, just with somebody else. I just, I'm, I'm not that, um, I'm not that into that, but I, but I will, you know, give me a good story and, and let me discover something and, and I'm, I'm good. Um, you know, I have like, and so I, I will sit down and, and like, especially on holidays, it's like a thing for me. It's like, it, it, it's part of the holiday. Yeah. The notion that I'm, you know, I'm going to today, I've, I've done everything I needed to do all the family stuff and everything else, you know, like you know, my family, usually we celebrate on the 24th of you know Christmas and on the 25th, that's the day that you will find me immersed in some video game that where the, the fiction, uh, cause that's the other thing is like, I'm not, uh, like, I, I'm interested in like some new fiction more so than uh, perhaps a new play mechanic, right? Yeah. So um, you like the you like the story and the worlds. That, that yeah, I like the world. Different. I like the discovery elements of the world, and um, and so you know you can you can, I mean that's that's kind of my you know it's just, that's my thing. Uh, um, that's cool, man. That's that's awesome. That it's awesome that you play games, uh, even if you only play them on uh, certain occasions. It's, it's yeah, still it's, it's still really cool. You know what? Like the everything you do, it's it's like to, I think to be a good designer, I think you have to immerse yourself in, um, you know, just sort of the, the context of the you know the things that you that you work in. You know, and so you got to know something about all of it. And, and, uh, and, and I, I'm telling you that there are, if somebody impresses me with some event or presentation in a, in a, in a AAA game, you know, don't, don't, don't uh, be surprised when you see me implement that in a pinball machine, <laughs> you know, right. Meaning, you know, the, the conceptually, not the, you know, like, 
not the thing, but 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 the but the thing I learned from, uh, exp- you know, from discovering that, right? So, um, I have a couple questions for you. Uh, two from the chat, one for myself. So, uh, one person on Twitch asks if there is a chance to do a Mortal Kombat pinball. I'm not sure if you guys have done one yet, or if maybe right. the. So you know, it's it's funny. I was just asked that question by another interviewer. My second pinball machine ever was almost Mortal Kombat. And um, at the time, at the time, um, I think Ed Boon was working on the second Mortal Kombat game, Mortal Kombat 2. And I walked into his office because I had the thought that, uh, wow, it'd be cool to do a challenge ladder and you know, face different opponents. And, and so I had this notion that you know, I could maybe do something with this. And I wanted to play the, the, I wanted, I had a very radical concept, which was to play with the notion of a life as opposed to uh, three balls, right? So, you know, so basically when he took the life out, you know, when you, when you basically, when you took your life, you, you know, flippers went dead, you were out, you know, so as opposed to, so uh, I did think about it. I did talk to Ed. I said, Hey, you know, do you mind if, if I do this? And uh, he was like, no, he says, you go ahead. And, and then I, one of the other designers, a famous pinball designer, Steve Ritchie said, hey, you know, I, I, I got dibs on that title. I, I had been thinking about doing it long before you got here. And, and so I was like, okay, I, you know, I, I defer, you know, um, and, 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 and the marketing guys at the time were also of the opinion that the audiences didn't cross over. And so um, they, they, th- they thought, yeah, you know, it's two different, it's two different animals. I don't, I don't know if they interact. And so, um, I don't, I don't, I, you know, that's not a, that's not one that I would say, um, it's not unlikely at the same time, you know, yeah, it's got some challenges. Yeah, Ed Boone actually came from pinball himself. Like he was yeah. actually worked on pinball machines. Uh, yeah, yeah, and so and, and you know, and he's a friend. So I I, I yeah. said to him at the time, and we were just I was just getting to know him back then. I it, but he was working on the second game, and I I do remember I was working late one night. And I, wa- I walked in his office. He was there. Um, he used to live there, uh, especially when when they were when they were getting close to shipping those games. He was just living there, and uh, and. Uh, um, I, I sat down and, and said, Hey, you know, so I had this idea and, you know, what do you think about this? And, and he was like, yeah, that's cool. And, and go make it, go do it. And, um, uh, I didn't, I never got real far. I did, I did, I laid out a play field. Um, and like I said, somebody, somebody, another interviewer asked me about this, um, uh, a couple of weeks ago and, and just coincidentally, Wow. Huh. Awesome. Uh, that, that's interesting. Um, then Graphic God says, did you ever design the nickel pinball bingo tables that he played as a 12-year-old and win in money? Nope. Nope. Missed that. Yeah, I don't I don't even know what that is. Maybe that's a Canadian thing, but I never seen those. A <laughs> Canadian thing. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I don't know if they had those in the states. I'm not sure. Uh, maybe in Vegas. 
And, uh, wow, now the question I was going to ask you slipped my mind. Oh, there it is. Okay, it just came back to me. So, I know that you said that you, you know, you, uh, you played the Halo campaigns and the Gears of War campaigns. Have you ever thought, uh, or Stern ever thought about doing maybe like a Halo pinball table or a Gears of War pinball yeah, table? Yeah, actually, yeah, I think we have. Um, oh, man. We have. Uh, so, so you, you have to remember that. So when we pick a license, right, one of the things that one of the uh, we, we may be the biggest company in pinball by far, but um, we're not that doesn't make us a big company. So we have to be very careful with um, the risks that we take. And while Halo is a very well, incredibly well-known brand, and, um, and actually those guys have talked to us a couple of times. Um, I think, you know, Allison Stroll over there has reached out and, and, and said, you know, you guys, you guys, we'd love for you guys to do this. And, and we've, we've considered it. And the, the, the issue that we have with licenses is that we, we don't have a, that, that, that does uh, directly speak to the thing that I mentioned before, where there's that, there's that concern. What, you know, is my, does my traditional audience relate to this? enough to make that successful. And so um, I'd love to do it personally, because I, you know, I have, I have history with the brand in terms of, you know, my own entertainment, right? So I, I would love to do it. I mean, to me that that's like, a, you know, it's like, sometimes I, I, I fantasize about the notion of a passion project, right? That I don't, where I don't have to like, I don't have to answer anybody. I'm just going to make this thing and I'm going to make one. I don't care, you know? And so that, that is the kind of thing that you might find me making, right? Um, just for the hell of it, just because I like it. <laughs> um, so, um, but the, 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 getting back on point, um, when we select a license, we, we try to, you know, we don't have room to be wrong and we have to hit the broadest possible audience. So mom's got to let it in the house and, and dad's got to want it. Junior's going to want to play with dad. It's got to work on the street in a barcade with 20 somethings. It's got to work in the basement at, you know, in the rec room. It's got to work in the movie theater lobby for the casual player. It's got to work everywhere. So it's kind of like, and my audience is literally that diverse, right? So the largest, this will surprise you, the largest fastest, not largest, fastest growing element of my audience is 20-somethings. They're discovering pinball in the barcades. They're getting into pinball. Um, my hope is that, you know, our hope is that, you know, maybe not in the next 10 years, but, but you know, when they start, you know, when they settle down or they start making money, that's, that's a future customer. So we want them to have those uh, you know, great memories of, you know, playing this thing in the barcade, right? Um, with kids, we want, you know, we want the interaction that, you know, we went to the movie theater, we went to the bowling alley. Like, remember I said, I used to go to, I used to go to, in Cub Scouts, we'd, we'd go bowling, right? And I'd sneak off to the arcade, right? Um, we want that happening today, right? We want the bowling alley to have pinball machines so that, uh, you know, little people, We'll get into pinball, right? So because they'll they'll have a positive mental experience of, wow, look at this amazing world 
with lights and things and stuff happening. And, uh, and, and, you know, they'll remember that fondly as they grow and they become, it becomes part of their entertainment um, staples. Right. So yeah. Um, Halo would love to do it. I don't, I don't know. You know, I, I need to, we need to, we, we would need to kind of wrap our heads around. Is it a, is it a brand that we say, I like to say we have to pick three bullets. Every bullet's got to hit their, hit its target. They have to be, you know, we don't have a room, we don't have room to miss. Every, every bullseye has got to be hit, um, you know, with the arrow this year. I'll make a pitch. I'll make a pitch for Halo. I'm a huge Halo fan. Okay. So here, so here's my pitch to somebody that has the power to make this happen. I'll, I'll, I have, I have like, I mean, it's like, to me, the game makes itself, right? Right. To me, the game makes itself. I know exactly what to do, but I, but I, uh, yeah. So it's like, you just, we just need to understand there's a crossover audience or not, you know? Yeah. So here, uh, Halo, uh, make it dark, incorporate the flood. You're a Spartan trapped on a Halo, uh, piece that's floating through space and you're in a in a place that you discover the flood you have you have to fight them off make it dark if you make well, it dark it'll sell i love it it'll be original i love it that's that's, that's my pitch so i can see it i mean you know what that epic music right <laughs> yeah 100 percent. you got to get that dark start out you know you start out just like the first halo you start out cool relax hey what's this cool place then you get dark in the middle of it you know you start losing your balls there you know yeah. uh yeah. you know i think you got something there. master chief voice comes <laughs> in every time you lose the ball or you yeah. you oh, pull yeah. the lever yeah <laughs> uh, that would be i'm gonna I mean, say that you know, that would be yeah, really cortana cool. i mean it's just it's just it makes itself yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right yeah, yeah. I, I AI, voice, nothing, AI voice guiding you through the game got it yeah. i got it it's done yeah <laughs> um and then i call? guess right. uh two more quick questions uh before if mav has any questions before we uh end the interview because i know it's been a while um so graphic god sent me a picture of the bingo table that he was talking about and now it might make more sense to you because it makes a little bit more sense to me it's called bally palm beach I, I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm sure I've heard of it, and and when I see it, I may have recognized it, but it's not, it's not, it's not, it's definitely not one of mine. Yeah, it looks like an older, older style machine for sure. It doesn't look, uh, yeah, it, yeah, it looks, it actually looks very old <laughs> uh, for a machine. Right. So, right. And then the other thing I wanted to ask you was the, um, I know that I actually have a. A disc of Sturm Pinball for Xbox, um, yep. and I'm not sure if that's something that you guys are continuing or adding on to. But we're I, we're continuing. But right now we're so we um, we're very interested in a, in a in a bigger footprint in the video game world as a company, and and we're exploring right now. We're 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 exploring a strategy. Um, to make a much bigger splash as an extension of our brand um, in digital pinball. And so, um, you know, we are um, working with a powerful partner and, you know, we hope, we hope that in some future 
you'll see some, um, you know, some really amazing stuff. Yeah, um, I think that, that, you know, our, our, um, you have to remember that, that, so when that business, when we got into that business, we, we, we got into it at a time when the company was very focused on its survival. And, and so we didn't have a lot of bandwidth to devote to supporting or developing um, a digital pinball business. We're in a different place now. And, and we, we, we see it, um, you know, the, the next big thing that you're gonna see happen in our pinball machines is um, connectivity. You know, when I, connect, when I connect the games, there's a variety of different strategies that are gonna come with that. Um, there's a bunch of peripheral things like the digital business that dovetail with that stuff. And, and so uh, to answer your question, we are very interested in that business, but, we, but we're interested in it. Uh, we want it to be very reflective of our brand. We want it to be um, the best in the world at what that is. And, and so we're, you know, we're focusing on that. That's, that sounds freaking incredible. I, I, I can, I get a sense that something is happening and something is coming in the future. You can't t tell too much about it right now. Uh, I'm curious Ooh. who the heck the partner is that you speak of. <laughs> I can't wait to see what this is, man. I, I could just see lots of possibilities because I've always been a, a fan of pinball and I've thought that the games themselves on, especially on, on console and stuff were just a, not necessarily that they're bad or anything. They're just kind of lacking that same uh, experience that you can't get mm -hmm. by playing on a table. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, I think it's, uh, so I think the effort requires, um, I think, I think for the effort to be uh, uh, pure and, and, and really um reflective of who we are it, it it's got to be influenced by guys that live and breathe pinball machines and yeah. so i think that um you know i think it's it's one thing as you know you know it's one thing for an outsider to to look at a pinball table believe they understand the game and 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 create digital pinball um it's it's you know it's from our perspective uh, very few of them are are you know, even our own, our uh, representative. And so we, we feel like we could do something. And, and that's kind of, that's where we want to go. And, and, and beyond that, we're building, you know, we're, we're building this kind of stern ecosystem of different, uh, you know, pieces of business, tentacles of business that, that, that we want to uh, that we want to explore, and and I'm all about let's get them all, let's let's get them all, you know, let's get some synergy across them, um, and leverage the things that are we do really well in one into some of the other ones, and 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 get a lot of strength. We're starting to do you you've seen our um, in the in the last four years, our you know the the growth in our accessory business has been explosive, right? Explosive meaning, you know, accessories tricking out our, your pinball machine, right? And, and we've, you know, we were creating, uh, now we're creating accessories that have interactive components. You buy the thing and you get more 
uh, gameplay stuff with the hardware. So when and when you know when the Stern game plugs into the topper, the topper brings rules and and play features that it didn't normally have. You know, there's a lot of that kind of stuff. And and so and and you know we see it and you know we we see the success of it. You know, it's like our Stranger Things game has this UV lit, uh, UV light kit that basically when the game is in the upside down mode, everything changes, you know, like it, you know, we turn on all these UV LEDs, everything changes. It's, it's, it's pretty cool. It's got a bunch of hidden art that you don't see until the UV lights come on. Um, people love that kind of stuff. You know, we've, we can't keep those things in stock. So, so you, so you say, you know, our, you know, I want, I want success. I want success in our accessories business. I want success in my parts business. I want success in my events business. I want success in my digital business. And I want, and of course, I want to be the dominant player in real pinball. I want, I want less expensive models. I want more expensive models. I want to be the world of pinball. I want, if it's Stern Pinball, I want a footprint. If it's pinball, I want a place. And I want to be. I want a dominant place because I'm, I'm the best, we're the best in the world. So why wouldn't we strive for quality and performance um, like we get from the games in all of those areas of business, all of those areas of entertainment? That's what I want. That's yeah, that, protecting the brand and pushing the brand to be um, quality. That's great. It is. Yeah. And I got to say, I was looking at some of your uh, license tables at Stern Pinball and the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles table just like pops out to me. Uh, it's something that yeah. I I mean, I love and I I, <laughs> I wish I could convince my wife that I need a <laughs> pinball team, table. You know, That's an amazing you know, table. We talk about the passion of the teams, right? How important the passion of the teams is to to the to. Uh, creating the product and and that team grew up with that fiction that team that worked on that game um grew up with that fiction just like you did and 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 it and it it's so it's so obvious when you play the game every every element of that game is consistent to the brand consistent to the experience uh that every you know everything you remember about the you know the, the the cartoon show, your toys, your you know all of the stuff you had, your comic books, everything is in there because these guys grew up with it, and and they were like, you know, the licensor had to do very little education. They were like, yeah, yeah, no, we got this, you know. <laughs> so yeah. so I mean that's so that that's the look. I mean we we do you know we address all kinds of things, right? It was like when I, when I did Deadpool, Marvel was amazing. They, they basically, every creator that has touched the Deadpool fiction has gotten some amount of latitude into creating a piece of Deadpool's world. And I got that latitude to create the world I created inside that pinball machine. And, and so I think that, that and, that's, and that's been the success of the product, by the way, the fact that, that wow, here's some cool new representation of Deadpool and all the things in his world. And yet it's consistent to who he is, to the brand. It's purely, absolutely consistent. Yet here's a bunch of new stuff. It's like, like saying, okay, here's a new 
writer, new new inker, new comic, you know, new 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 artist, and you you give them a book and you say, okay, you guys are doing you know a new series on on Deadpool, and and that that's the freedom we got, and that and that, and and that's the, and I think I think it reflects the in the success we've had with it, you know. Oh man, I mean, just yeah, looking. I gotta say this if. If I'm ever like in the Illinois area where you guys are, I'd love come to us. come in. Yeah, yeah I'd love come to see to... us. Oh man. Yeah, no, we, we we do. So we do tours. I mean, clearly uh, life's been different in COVID, so we haven't we you know we've we've cut out and we haven't we haven't done any tours um, during COVID times. But but as the world begins to get more normal, um, that stuff will be there, and you know and um, you know come come and see us, and it's. Uh, we do tours all the time, and um, uh, this the, the studio is a different uh, different story. It's it's very it's tough to get a studio tour, but but uh, you know you never know. You might see you know you might see a limited. Um, maybe we can figure something out. Awesome. Yeah, I know that uh, Carlo, you're 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 on it with those emails, so maybe we can take a field trip one day. <laughs> man that, that no that uh, turtles uh, i i'm with i'm with you though man that that's like my favorite table that they have yeah uh, just browsing through the catalogs and stuff you guys uh where are you guys located i'm in florida yeah i'm in dallas yeah come on come come and see us sometime awesome well Absolutely. um now did you have any questions before you close the interview no i just want to say uh Thank you so much for taking uh, your time to be here and share the amazing, crazy stories going from two Cuban refugees making Spy Hunter and the, to, you know, all the way through, um, you know, creating a pinball to where you are as a like big time part. Uh, I guess you said the chief executive, chief officer of uh, chief creative officer, chief creative officer of Stern, Stern. <laughs> I, didn't I, mean, myself, just... I, I didn't, I didn't give myself the title, the, you know, the owners of the company. <laughs> yeah. But uh, that's, I mean, what a journey, uh, the influences that you've had uh, throughout video games and entertainment and stuff that we've all enjoyed and grown up to love um, is incredible. So uh, just, Super appreciate you being here and sharing uh, all of that with us. Well, I hope um, I hope people like the interview and um, thanks for inviting me on. I'm 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 thrilled that uh, um, you know you guys like the work. I, I you know that that's that's a, a big part of my joy and um, and um, yeah and let's uh, you know stay in touch. Absolutely. Absolutely. And uh, again, thank you, George. I I know that uh, probably when you started out in this business you had no idea that you would be considered like a pioneer or, <laughs> or how much your work would have influenced things going forward. But you've been a huge part of this industry. And I know, you know, you mentioned uh, Brian Collin and I actually had a chance to meet him at a pinball convention and he did follow me on Twitter. So mm -hmm. it was kind of like unreal to hear that, that you've actually worked with him in some sense or, or known him as well as so just... you know I, I hired him did you I him, yeah i gave him his first job in the business i hired him oh wow that's, that's... that's another whole story he's a super talented guy super talented guy like really um the guy is a, a a ball of creative energy really wow. well 
fantastic stuff that you're doing. Um, keep up the great work. I mean, for guys like Mav and I, it is very inspirational. We we do look up to all these artistic creations in the, in the video game industry. So thank you very much, um, and thank you for your time today. Thanks a lot, guys. See you later. Bye. Bye, George. And to the chat, thank you for coming by. Um, for everybody who hung out with us, uh, we went on almost two hours. I can't believe it. Like, um, w what a fantastic guy. Really loved every second of this and the stories in the industry. Um, and, and Mav, uh, before we get out of here, why don't you tell everybody, you know, what you've been up to where people can find you. And congrats, lady, for joining Xbox Ultimate. Yeah, yeah. So that we made that announcement yesterday. Uh, we asked her if she want to be a part of it. She said she said yes, uh, and su super excited to have her on on as many shows as she can make time for. Just uh, uh, just lots of awesome stuff. That uh, thankful to anybody that's wanted to be a part of our show. So, um, and to everybody in the chat, thank you for being here. It's awesome uh, for you, the questions you put in there, and also uh, the feedback you give to. Uh, all of us for what, what we're doing. So appreciate you and uh, clowns. Thanks for setting up another amazing interview with such a freaking legend, you know, uh, pretty incredible. Uh, the stuff that you're putting together for us to, uh, to pick these like guys brains. It's just like, I can't believe I'm uh, even able to sit here and take part in this dude. And so I, I super appreciate that. Uh, but yeah, so we're we're going uh, live tomorrow night for Fun Pop, and then Friday night for uh, Xbox Ultimate. Uh, last night I got to hang out with Noof on Gaming After Dark. That was fun. Um, but uh, yeah, man, what what else do you got going on? Well, so speaking of tomorrow, uh, I I have two interviews booked for tomorrow. <laughs> what's going on man All so right. what, what, what's booked for tomorrow because i know you sent this stuff to me and i, I just can't keep up because I, I don't I, know how you can keep up i can't because when you either. book it i don't even know how like i'm trying to keep up and remember this stuff right, so what's what's going on tomorrow so we have triona farrell um oh, yeah. she's a colorist okay. that wears a marvel dark horse image and vault um and then we have Matt Hill from Ed, Ed and Eddie. Okay. And we have a guest panelist on that one. It's um, uh, Jokey uh, is going to join us. Jokey Pants for that one. Um, oh, yeah, that's right. He's a big Ed, Ed and Eddie fan. That's right. Yes, he's huge. So we're going to make his life dream come true. And he wants to talk like Rolf for at least a good five minutes, he said, and see if he can okay. impress the guest. So, yeah, that's what we got going on. And then Friday, we have an interview with Square Enix uh, with Aaron Kaufman. So that's going to be fun. And then... And what time is that one on Friday? Do you remember? Uh, I believe that one is 11 a.m. Eastern. I will double check and put it in the group chat for sure. Um, and we actually have some more coming up after that as well. But um, I got to just... Check those emails, Mav. <laughs> Just gotta check those emails. <laughs> right on, dude. But again, uh, George was awesome. Love talking to you. 
and everything that you talked about just hit i mean it really hit home for me if you're still listening um it was a majority of my time growing up in the arcades um at my dad's restaurants um spy hunter was a game that i just adored i love that game and i buy iterations of that game as well uh still to this day and he mentioned uh, Space Invaders. We, I didn't get a chance to tell him this, but we actually had a red Space Invaders cabinet uh, on oh. our porch, yeah, in our backyard. Um, it, and it was really popular for a while until my cousin shot it with a BB gun, but it was very <laughs> functional before that. So uh, it was, you know, just awesome stuff, man. And, and to the chat, thank you for hanging out with us. It's been a long two hours, and uh, I appreciate it, man. I appreciate you guys showing up uh, to our podcast of the gamers united guild podcast to xbox ultimate to fun pop um everything that is is part of the four guys team um you know i can't thank the team enough because i will always say this that you know you can you can have a podcast and you can be in host but you know your team really makes up a majority of um the success and I know that Mav is starting uh, fun speculation, and uh, I know that he's going to feel the same way. Um, so thank you, everybody, and thank you to everyone at Four Guys Recorders and Gamers United Guild, um, and see you guys tomorrow. Bye, everybody. <laughs>